0: So does
1: everybody have the handouts? There were two handouts. So my husband has some in the back, and Danny can help too, if y'all can just pass those out. One is for tonight, and one is for you to take home and read before you go to bed. So, Yeah, before bed. Which means please don't read it while I teach, (laughs) because it's long. Okay, are we getting the handouts passed out? Okay. What time is it, Pastor Tom? It is quarter okay, good. Thank you. It's fine. I've got a timer so I can so I can watch myself. Okay. So, Father God, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for each one that's come tonight. And God, you know the time that I've spent in your word. But God, what's most important tonight is that I just empty myself of me and what I think I know and my insecurities and my motives and my sin and all of that. God, I just empty myself tonight so that you can fill me up. And so, God, I just ask that you would fill me up with the anointing of the Holy Spirit because I can speak words, but only you can change hearts. Only you can instruct hearts. Only you can quicken someone's identity in Christ to them. I can stand and talk, but God, you're the one that is the power behind any word that I say. So, God, we just surrender this time to you. We open our hearts up to your word. God, we thank you for your word, and it is full of living power. And, God, I pray that each person tonight would leave encouraged in who they are in Christ and what you've done for them and in how rich they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so my name is Lisa, and I'm so thankful that y'all are here. As I thought about today, I was so excited that this was just family. I could take a deep breath, and I could just be me because y'all are family, and you've known me for a long time, and you've put up with me. So I'm just thankful that, um, that you came tonight. So just a little bit about my style of teaching and, and how I teach. I teach from the New American Standard Bible, and that is a word-for-word translation as opposed to a thought-for-thought like the New Living. And it's, it's my favorite Bible. I think I've had this one for about maybe 17 years or so. And I study using Kay Arthur's Precept Bible Studies and she teaches an inductive approach. So what that means is, you know, a lot of, um, like the NIV Study Bible has all those notes and you might read the verse and read the notes. But in inductive Bible study, you don't get any notes. You don't, you're not allowed to use the commentaries until you first study the word for yourself. And then you go through all the cross-references and you do the word studies and you determine for yourself what you think it means. And then you can go to the commentaries and see, well, was I off? Was it right? And so you really dig first instead of just going to what a man thinks or a woman or whoever wrote the book that you're using. So that's how I study. And a lot of what I'll do is I teach is, is called the five W's and an H who, what, when, how, where, and why. And you can study your Bible this way tomorrow morning. When you read a verse, you look at who, what, when, how, where, why. Not every verse will have that one, have all of those components, but a lot of them will. And it'll just help you when you have a verse with 30 words to figure out, okay, what is this saying? If you, get, if you move all the prepositional phrases in the right places, then what does it mean? So that is how I study. I also do a lot of word studies and cross-references. And one thing that I also do is I mark key words. So the homework, if you were here last week, I asked you to read Ephesians one, and if you could mark in Christ or in him or with Christ, and you start to see a pattern. Like the word grace is used 12 times in Ephesians. You start to see patterns which put the books together for you and help them overall to make sense. So there were two references that I used extensively in preparing my notes and and understanding some of this deep theological stuff. And one is um, Be Rich by Warren Wiersbe. It's the New Testament commentary on Ephesians. So if I say (sighs) Wiersbe said, then it came out of this little book. And then the second one is the MacArthur New Testament commentary on Ephesians by John MacArthur. Probably... (laughs) Probably a lot of what I say tonight, if it sounds really smart, it probably came from one of these books. So these are great books that have helped me, and I'll usually quote um, when I'm quoting them directly. So those were great. So let's jump in, and and I'm not going to teach every verse. I'm going to teach the ones, you know, within an hour, the ones that were the most important. I wish I could skip over the hard things like election and predestination and submission, but I'm not gonna skip those things. So we will touch the hard things, even though it'd be easier if I just skipped them. So let's jump in with verse one. Okay, I'll make sure my slides are going. Verses one through two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts all of his epistles, every letter that he wrote to a church, he starts with grace and peace. And that is God's message to us tonight. Because we have grace from God, we have peace with God. So every letter he started with with grace and peace. And there was one Sunday morning when I was just down here on the floor worshiping and I was really struggling. And then I was reminded, grace and peace. That is God's heart towards you tonight. It's grace and peace. And as I started flipping through and looked all the way to the end to make sure it was in every one, when you get to First and Second Timothy, which Paul wrote at the very end of his life, he adds mercy in there. Grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit about the recipients. So anytime you study a book of the Bible, you wanna look at who are the recipients and who is the author. And you can go through and read the book and make lists. What does it say about the recipients? What does it say about the author? So obviously the recipients of the book of Ephesians were those saints who were in Ephesus. Ephesus. So Ephesus was on the west coast of Turkey. On the map up here, you see the big word Turkey and right below it, that is Ephesus. So both Jews and Greeks lived there and it was the home of the temple of Artemis, which was also known as Diana. We're not gonna go back into Acts 19 and 20, but that is where Paul's time in Ephesus is covered is Acts 19 and 20. And what you learn is that the Ephesians practiced witchcraft and they practiced idolatry, and as a result, they were sick, and they were demon-possessed. So that is who Paul is writing to. So on his third missionary journey, he stayed there for about two years, and he saw the whole vast area evangelized, and he founded a strong church, which Pastor Tom likes to say was in revival. So he founded a very strong church there. And so all of that is covered in Acts 19 and 20. So about 10 years later is when Paul wrote Ephesians. And if you remember when I taught Philippians about a year and a half ago, we, we talked about those imprisonments that he had. So he wrote Ephesians during the first Roman imprisonment. And he was about 60 years old. It's about the same time when he wrote Philippians. So it's AD 60 to 62. And by this point, he had gone through some things. He had gone through shipwrecks and beatings, and hunger, and thirst, and cold. And now he's in prison. So it's from this place where he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. So who is Paul? Of course, there's a lot of things that you can say from Paul about Paul, but I wanna just highlight some of the things he says about himself in the book of Ephesians. And we'll cover these in all of the six weeks. Paul is an apostle, He describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's a minister of the gospel. And he's an ambassador for the gospel in chains. And one thing that I love is in chapter 3, when he's describing a lot of this, these things about himself, he talks about the grace that was given to him, the power that was given to him. And it's so encouraging because it means we don't do ministry alone. We do it with the grace from God, with the strength from God, with the power from God. And so that's a really encouraging chapter so let's talk about the content overview of Ephesians. The first three chapters, so it's divided right down the middle, six chapters. It's divided right down the middle, and being an engineer who loves symmetry, that makes me really happy. So the first three chapters are theology and doctrine. So it's talking about God's kindness, His riches, and His grace. It's talking about your riches in Christ, basically your identity in Christ. This is the bedrock of your identity in Christ. And in the last chapters, it talks about submission and then chapter six is spiritual warfare. And it was really hard for me to find application from this first chapter, which is so much doctrine and theology. So basically the application is believe it. God says this is who you are believe it so that's that's the big application is believe what the word says about you as we talk about these riches these are what you have this is who you are and then the last three chapters he talks about behavior be gentle be humble be meek he the behavior and practical instruction now that you're saved this is how you should walk So he talks about how to walk out um, your salvation. Oh, I, I messed up. So I'm sorry, in the first three chapters, he doesn't talk about the submission and spiritual warfare. The third thing that he talks about is called the mystery. And for this week, we're just gonna leave it as the mystery. So you have to come back to find out what the mystery is. So it's in the second half that he talks about submission and spiritual warfare. So he had a dual purpose in writing the book of Ephesians. One was to share with them how they were rich in Christ. And then now that they were rich in Christ and they knew that, this is how they were to walk. Ephesians 4.1 says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So MacArthur says the first three chapters set forth truth about the believer's identity in Christ and the last three call for the practical response. So if I were to sum up Ephesians in eight words, you could just write the eight words and just go home now and get in your jammy pants. It's this, you are rich in Christ, so walk worthy. So that is the theme of Ephesians. And we'll be repeating that in the coming weeks so you can get that down. It's pretty easy. So, Ephesians, when you go to the commentaries, there are all different names that are given to the book of Ephesians. Of course, Wearsby calls his book Be Rich. It's been called The Believer's Bank, The Christian's Checkbook, which I did bring an old checkbook here tonight. If you find it tonight, it's not worth anything. But The Christian's Checkbook, and The Treasure House of the Bible. So, some of the common words you see are riches and grace and fullness. And glory. So, as I said before, it's helpful to mark those keywords. And in Christ is the most frequently used phrase in the book of Ephesians. And anytime you see in Christ, if you see in Him with the pronoun or with Him the pronoun, it, it means the same thing. So, if you're in Christ, you have everything. So imagine a person who had everything, I brought a checkbook register to, these are kind of obsolete now that we do a lot of our banking online. I don't think my children know how to use a register yet. But imagine if your checkbook register said you had millions and millions of dollars, but you were too afraid to write a check and you lived like a pauper. So this is the type of Christian that Paul's writing to in Ephesus the ones that were rich, so very rich, but yet they were living like paupers. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in the Bible. Now in our translations, it's broken down into sentences and paragraphs so that we can track with Paul. But it's the longest sentence in the Bible. It has, and I counted, 215 words and about 10 verses. So about 21, 22 words per verse. And it's kind of confusing. I'm not gonna stand here and read it all because y'all will be like, huh? But what we're gonna do is we're gonna break it down because it's very wordy, lots of prepositional phrases, adjective phrases, adverbial phrases. So we're gonna break it down. It talks about the past, what God did in the past, what he's doing in the present, and it talks about our glorious future. You can break the blessings down into the blessings from the Father, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and um, God the Holy Spirit. So let's jump into the blessings. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's where your um, handout is gonna be helpful because what we're going to do is we're going to take these riches in Christ and we're going to break them down into the who, what, when, how, where, why. And your handout may differ a little bit from my slides because I'm imperfect. So if it differs a little bit, I'm sorry. I made some changes as I went along. So say to yourself, I am blessed. I am blessed. How are you blessed? With every spiritual blessing. And You don't have to repeat everything with me because sometimes it's going to get really long. But the who is by God and the where is in the heavenly places. So the word spiritual, y'all might get tired of me saying in the Greek this means, but it really does help us to uncover another layer of scripture when you look at that. So the word spiritual in the Greek is pneumaticos which the root word of it is pneuma. And so you may know that pneuma is the same word that is used to describe Holy Spirit. So spiritual refers to the source of the blessing. This verse can be translated as, we've been blessed with all the blessings of the Spirit. A cross reference is 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And you're gonna hear that one a few times tonight because it goes right along with be rich, you're rich in Christ. So the heavenlies describe that place where Jesus is right now, and we're gonna learn that we are seated with him And there are other things going on in the heavenly places, which we're gonna cover in the book of Ephesians. But for right now, we can just leave it as that's where Jesus is right now and where we're seated with him. So I wanna read something to you from MacArthur that that really challenged me. And I don't wanna present this as doctrine, but just as another opinion, because it, it challenged me. He says, many Christians continually ask God for what he has already given they pray for him to give them more love, although they should know that, quote, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. They pray for peace, although Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, John fourteen twenty seven. They pray for happiness and joy, although Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full, John fifteen eleven. They ask God for strength, although his word tells us in Christ, he makes us strong. We can do all things through him who strengthens us, Philippians 4, 13. So it's just a different perspective. And we we always pray for more. But what I want you to understand tonight is in Christ, you have everything that you need. It's already yours. The bank account is full. You need to write the checks. But you have everything that you need already. So I'm not saying you can't pray that way or it's wrong to pray that way because Sunday morning I was down on my face saying I want more of you Jesus because sometimes that's just how the prayer comes out. But what I want you to consider is let's ask God how we can appropriate what we already have. Okay, so that was, that was challenging to me and, and we'll touch on that a little bit more because Wiersbe went on and said the same thing. So MacArthur says, all that the Lord has, those in Christ have. Where he is, we are. What he is, we are. What he does, we do. So we have all of Jesus that there is right now. Okay, so the next blessing, the next rich, one of the riches is I am chosen. So say to your neighbor, I am chosen. You are chosen. Okay, so following along on the slides or your paper. So the one who did the choosing is God. Now, when you were chosen is before the foundation of the world. So before God created a butterfly or a bluebird or a beautiful sequoia tree, God chose you. Before he made anything, he chose you. Now, just let that sink in. He chose you before he made anything. Why did he choose you? To be holy and blameless. Where? It says before him. So in his presence or in his sight. So Wearsby says God chose us even before he created the universe so that our salvation is holy of his grace and not on the basis of anything that we ourselves have done. So the word chosen means to select, to choose for oneself, not necessarily implying the rejection of what's not chosen, but choosing with the ideas of kindness and love and favor. Now, I love props, and I had a hard time thinking about props for this study, and this one's a little cheesy, but just go with me. Oops, Brian, can you help? Thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna tie up the teddy bear with the rope, and (laughs) no, not really. (laughs) <laughs> no, so when Hannah, was, when Hannah was little, she loved to go to this store called the Build-A-Bear Workshop. And if you, any of you have daughters or granddaughters during that time, you, you know what I'm talking about. You go in and there's all these bears on the wall. And you choose one and then you stuff it and you give it a heart and you buy its clothes and it gets its birth certificate and they do all these things. So it's an experience. It's not just, you know, buying a stuffed animal in the store. But I would say, honey, you need to choose. And she wanted them all, but she had to make a choice. And so in the same way, God chooses us MacArthur says, it's not because we, those who are in Christ, are more worthy than anyone else or more deserving or meritorious, but simply because God willed to choose us. God willed to choose us. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So God chose us, chose us. So this is the doctrine of election And this is something that I can't fully explain to you. I know those of you that have been to Bible college have probably taken whole courses on this. There are books written on it. And it's something that's incomprehensible to our finite thinking because there's a tension. There's a tension between two things here. On one hand, there's God's sovereignty in choosing us. And then on the other hand, there's our free will in choosing God. Both of these things are true. God does sovereignly choose us. We have a free will in choosing God. Both of these things are essential. And what we often try to do, because our finite mind can't make sense of how this works, we try to water it down. Like I've always thought, well, God only chooses those that he knows will choose him back. And I don't know if that's true, but we try to adjust the truths. We try to water down one truth so that this will make sense or water down the, the other truth. And what I want to leave you with this is not, I don't have the answers, but what MacArthur says is we should believe both truths completely, that God is sovereign and man has free will and leave the harmonizing of them up to God. Only God can make sense of this. We can't make sense of this, of election, with our finite thinking. But we do know that God's heart is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We know John 3, 16, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. So we can't make sense of it. So we just have to trust God's word is true. So why did God choose us? Verse 4b, it says that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, we don't often feel holy and blameless. I mean, probably on a day-to-day basis, we deal with some level of selfishness, pride, some anger, When somebody cuts you off in traffic, there's probably not a whole lot of holy and blameless going on in your car, right? Some of that sin nature, that old stuff rears its ugly head. So we're not always walking in that complete holiness. But what MacArthur says Paul is talking about is our position, not necessarily our practice. Although we wanna aim for being holy and blameless, we're gonna fall short of that holy standard while we're in these bodies. But our position before God is in Christ and that is holy and blameless. So here's a quote for you. Our practice can and does fall short, but our position can never fall short because it is exactly the same holy and blameless position before God that Christ has. And so there are gonna be times when you don't feel holy and blameless, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with different things. But no, when God looks at you, he sees his son and he's pleased with his son. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to pay for your sin. Jesus has made you holy and blameless before him. That's where you are. You are holy and blameless before him. So we were chosen before the foundation of the world so we can be holy and blameless before him. So next is I am adopted. So we are adopted, the what is as sons, and I added as daughters. How? By being predestined and in love. Who adopted us? God. Where? To himself. He adopted us to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will, which means his delight or his good pleasure. So say to yourself, I am adopted. adopted. Okay, so let's talk very briefly about this word predestined (laughs) because I just really don't wanna go there. It hurts my head. But what it means, I'm just being honest, it means to mark out beforehand or to determine before. And a cross reference is Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So, again, this is another confusing word. And what I found is is I studied it, and I didn't go very deep, I didn't read books on predestination. But what I found was, in the Bible, this word primarily refers to God's purposes for saved people. So in this verse, we're predestined to become conformed. He predestined us to adoption. We're going to see we're predestined to, find, to obtain an inheritance. And I do have some other cross-references of every place this word is used in the Bible. If you want to do some further study and help us to understand it. So the doctrine of election, you know, with the rope, that refers to people, but predestination most often refers to God's purposes. He's predestined us, marked us out beforehand for purposes. So let's talk about what adoption means. So the the background of the word adoption was in the Roman judicial system, an adopted child was recognized as a new person. All of their debts and obligations from their former life were wiped out, As an adopted child of God, you have a fresh start, a new life beginning, a totally new slate. Isn't that good news? Could y'all have used, when you got that fresh start, didn't you need that fresh start, the new slate? So as I would study this, sometimes I would spend a whole week like studying one verse, which is why it took me six months. But I would get to the end of a study and I would write my summary from the word studies. And this is real simple, but... To summarize being chosen and adopted, before God created the world in Christ, he chose us and adopted us as his sons and daughters to be holy and blameless before him because it made him happy. It made him happy. It said, according to the kind intention of his will, according to his pleasure, it made him happy to choose us. So the next one is probably one of my favorites. I am graced with grace. So verse six says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we are graced with grace. Who does it? God. What did he do? Freely bestow his grace. Where? On us, in the beloved. So freely bestowed means to pursue with grace, to compass with favor, and to honor with blessings. And what I found as I studied this phrase, translated freely bestowed, is the root word is grace. So God freely bestowed his grace. He graced us with grace. And what I love is I'll study these things out and I'll come to these conclusions and I'll think, is that right? And then I'll read in MacArthur and he'll say, God graced us with grace. And I'm like, praise the Lord, I got something right. So I love it when God confirms that I'm on the right rabbit trail, I'm tracking with him. So let's talk a little bit about what grace means. And we'll do this more next week um, because we're saved by grace in Ephesians 2. So grace is used 12 times in Ephesians. It means, it's the word charis, and pardon my southern pronunciation of Greek words, but it's just what it is. Charis means favor on the part of the giver, thanks on the part of the receiver. So the cross-reference would be Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So grace is a gift. The Vines Dictionary is a resource that I use to look up words. And that says the friendly disposition, this is what grace is, the friendly disposition from which the kindly act proceeds. But the next definition is one that's just settled in my heart and it, it rocks me. This is what Wiersbe says grace is. The kindness of God towards undeserving people. Now think about that when you've received the kindness of God in your life, when you least deserved it, in your salvation, clearly, but even now, and even those that are not saved, they're receiving the kindness of God when they're undeserving, and that is what grace is. So that's probably the best definition I have seen, the kindness of God towards undeserving people. Wearsby says, we're not acceptable before God because of anything that we do, but only by his grace. And we'll talk more about that with salvation next week. So verses seven through eight says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So there's grace again, riches of his grace. So let's look at our next part of our identity. We have redemption. How? Through his blood. How? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So a lot of those prepositional phrases, they describe how God did something. So you want to look at them in that way when you're trying to figure out what verses mean. So redemption, I loved that John's saying about a ransom, because redemption means to be purchased from the slave market of sin, totally free, never to be sold again, a releasing by the payment of a ransom. So Jesus paid our ransom. And you have a handout called The Slave Marketplace. And I wrote that after I spent a couple days studying this word redemption and following it all the way back to the root words, Um, and God just really moved my heart. So I'll just summarize briefly. Jesus saw us at the slave market of sin. He saw us at the slave market bound by our own sin, and he said, I'm gonna pay the ransom and buy that one back if she'll let me, if she'll let me. I'm gonna to offer to take her place, to loose the bonds of her sin and place them on my own pure hands. So he took our place. He paid the ransom. He paid what we could not pay. The wages of sin is death. He paid what we could not pay. So he paid our ransom. And that is what redemption means. We have redemption. A cross reference is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And another cross-references, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we were redeemed through his blood. So in that same verse, It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's look at that. Say, I have forgiveness. I have forgiveness. What of my trespasses? How, and this is the same as redemption, through his blood and according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on me. So forgiveness, means a release from bondage or imprisonment it's a pardon of sins it's letting them go as if they've never been committed so the the root word of it means to send away and so you may know that Yom Kippur was this past weekend. It's the day of atonement. It's, it, it was Israel's highest holy day and still is Israel's highest holy day. And on this day, they slaughtered um, two goats and they took one and they sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But then this second goat, what the high priest would do is he would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people on the goat. And then someone would lead that goat out into the wilderness where it could never find its way back. So the sins of the people were sent away. And that is what forgiveness means. Weersby says, Christ died to carry away our sins so that they might never have to be seen again. So those sins of yours that you think God is still remembering and may be holding against you, they're never to be seen again. They were sent away. That's what forgiveness means, to send away, the root word, to send away. Jesus carried our sins an infinite distance from us and they can never return again, just like that scapegoat. A cross-reference is Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Doesn't that sound different now that you know what forgiveness means? Sent away, never to return again. So as I summarized this after studying it, I wrote, because of the precious blood of Christ, we are no longer under a curse. We're not gonna suffer God's wrath, but our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God. We have peace with God. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus and he's pleased. We're redeemed from the law, We are redeemed from slavery to sin and from the power of Satan and the world. I just love that. We're redeemed and forgiven. So let's jump down to verse 11 and let's talk about our inheritance. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. So there you see predestined and purpose together who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. So you have an inheritance. Say, I have an inheritance. I have an inheritance. How? Because we were predestined according to God's purposes. And why? That I should be to the praise of his glory. So what is this inheritance? So this is an aspect of our salvation that's primarily in the future. We'll receive our complete inheritance when we go to heaven. Our inheritance we've already talked about includes every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in Christ, we inherit every divine promise that God ever made. So a couple cross references would be 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to obtain an inheritance, which is, sometimes when I try to quote it from my memory, I butcher it. So I'm just going to read it. I get ahead of myself. Which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So it's there waiting for you, incorruptible. You know, your cars that you're driving, they're gonna get beat up and they're gonna rust and they're gonna fall apart. Your home, the roof's gonna decay and eventually you're gonna need new floors. All of these material things we have will decay and fade away. Even our own bodies will decay and one day fade away. But that inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away. Kept in heaven for us. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Another um, cross-reference that I cut out because of Tom talked about being heirs of the kingdom. So in summary, because of God's mercy, hope, and grace, we have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven because we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and heirs of his kingdom. So everything Jesus has, we have. So next, let's look at verses 13 through 14, which talks about Holy Spirit. It says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the next, um, rich in Christ, is we are sealed. Excuse me. So when were we sealed? After listening to and believing the gospel, how, with the Holy Spirit, Why? As a pledge of my inheritance and future redemption. So it's a pledge for those riches he's already given us. It's a pledge. We are gonna receive those things. So sealed means to stamp, like with a signet ring. And in ancient times, adopted sons were given their father's signet ring. We are we are adopted children. And ancient kings would use signet rings to seal up their letters. They would stamp into the wax and it would verify, this is from the king. They would give their secondhand men signet rings to symbolize, I have the authority of the king. I'm walking in his authority. So adopted children were given their fathers signet rings and it was a visible sign to everyone who would see it. I'm my father's child. And so I don't have a signet ring. But I did find Brian's class ring from what year, honey? 19 what? 1987. Okay. So it would stamp. So Holy Spirit is the Father's signet ring. It stamps you. It is what seals you and marks you. It identifies you. It is what gives you authority. You are sealed. So Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We just saw he's a pledge of our future redemption. In 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, what I wanna point out with this is that others know who you are too because there should be a family resemblance. Holy Spirit in us is the family resemblance. The the fruit of the Spirit living in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that should be a visible sign to others that we're wearing our daddy's ring Others should be able to see that family resemblance and that we are adopted children. So that is application. You can think about, does my life indicate God's ownership of me? Does my life indicate to others that I'm adopted, that I'm wearing my daddy's signet ring? What does it look like to others? So the other part of verse 14 says, Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance And in the um, King James, the word is earnest. In the NIV, deposit, the word pledge is translated. In the amplified, it means down payment. So a pledge is part of the purchase of a property given in advance as security for the rest. So when you make a down payment on a house, you're saying, I'm gonna pay the rest of my loan. You give that money to the bank, it's a pledge. I'm gonna pay the rest of my loan. So a cross-reference would be 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So Holy Spirit is the divine pledge or down payment of our internal inheritance. So basically what God did is he says, I'm gonna put part of myself in you and I'm not gonna leave myself behind. I'm gonna come back and get you because part of me resides in you. So I'm gonna come back and get you and take you home. It's the pledge of your inheritance. It's the pledge of your future redemption. God's not gonna leave us behind. Wearsby says the Holy Spirit is God's first installment to guarantee to his children that he's gonna finish his work and eventually bring us to glory. So when Jesus comes back, we're gonna be redeemed. We're gonna have that inheritance. So let's sum up riches in Christ. Because of God, this is my summary I wrote. Because of God's kind and gracious will, we are blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, graced with grace, sealed, and we have an inheritance. These are our riches in Christ. So we know that our heavenly father isn't poor. He's rich and he's made us rich in his son. So as I've said before, too many Christians never look at that checkbook register to see that they're rich in Christ, to know that vast spiritual wealth that God's put in us. We can draw on this wealth for our daily living Weirsby says, not to know and depend on Holy Spirit's provision is to live a life of spiritual poverty. So when you think about these riches, all these riches that you have in Christ, are you living like a prince, drawing on that vast spiritual wealth that's in you, or are you living like a pauper? So that's application. The other application is, this is who you are in Christ, believe it. (laughs) If only it would be that simple, but this is who you are in Christ. This is the bedrock of your identity. All of these things that were given to us. So let's transition to the rest of Ephesians, which is Paul's prayer. Ephesians, um, so I'm gonna read 15 through 16. Okay, for this reason, I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he starts out with, for this reason. And anytime you see a therefore or a because or for this reason, you want to know, well, what is it there for? Well, what did he just talk about for 215 words? It's our riches in Christ. So that is why he says, for this reason, he's gonna pray for us because he knows that we're rich in Christ and he wants us to understand that. So 17 through 19a, this is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom, wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So another tool that I use when I study is I make a lot of lists. If you see this comma, this comma, and this period, well, you need to make a list of three things. And there are three things here that Paul says he wants them to know. And if you, you kind of miss it unless you make the list. So three things that we would know. This is the what. The hope of his calling of us, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us, which he's just talked about, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. So that's the what of Paul's prayer, what he wants us to know. And then right before it, he starts it with the how. How? by receiving a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first how. By having the eyes of our heart enlightened. I get really excited when I teach about the word know or knowledge. And when I'm even reading it, you can start to see me smile because I love these words. Now this word knowledge, it means full discernment. I'm, I'm saying it wrong, but it's epignosis. It means full discernment or a full knowledge. So the first knowledge of something, like when you first met me, that's gnosis. It's the first knowledge. But my husband's been married to me 20-something years, 22. That man has a full knowledge of me. So the first knowledge is gnosis. Epignosis is the full knowledge. And what Paul is praying here, this word knowledge, that is full knowledge, that isn't just the head knowledge or the beginning knowledge. When we were saved, we had that first knowledge of God. But Paul is praying that we would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of God. You have to catch that, the full knowledge of God. It's a maturity and we, we have to grow in our knowledge of God until we have this full knowledge. And being a Bible teacher, I'll just have to say the way you do it is in the Word. The way you grow in your knowledge of God is in the Word. That's how you grow. This whole book is about who He is, what He's like, what His personality is. So the phrase, um, Eyes of Your Heart enlightens. the NIV commentary says, Eyes of Your Heart denotes an inner awareness provided by Holy Spirit that realizes everything God has made available to us. So that goes back to understanding those riches in Christ. Now, I'm gonna kinda be going back and forth a little. So when Paul said that we would know, and he lists those three things, that word know, that's a verb. So knowledge is a noun. To know, that's a verb. That word know in the Greek is fullness of knowledge. It's not just to know a little or to know haphazardly but it's to know perfectly so again these two words indicate a full knowledge a full understanding a mature understanding and so there's three things that he wants us to know and and I sometimes like in my bible I mark the prepositional phrases with pencil I put I put parentheses around them because sometimes you hear you know surpe- surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in, and you lose track what is the real point so know is our verb and the object of that verb he wants us to know hope because that's a noun he wants us to know riches those other things are prepositional phrases of the glory that tells the kind of riches of his inheritance tells the kind of riches and then if you'll track with me i'm just going to say this i believe he wants us to know the greatness Because surpassing is an adjective, and of his power is an adjective. It's an adjective phrase. So he wants us to know the hope, the riches, and the greatness. So let's talk about the hope of his calling of us. So in this context, a calling is just an invitation. It's not your destiny or or what God wants you to do, but this is just an invitation. This is the divine calling to embrace the salvation of God. So a cross-reference would be 2 Timothy 1.9, and this is talking about God. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. So this is primarily referring to salvation. And the other verse that's, the real hope of our calling is, you can see me, I smile and I start to get so excited. First Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. So again, this is salvation that God's gonna make us pure and holy until he comes to take us home. He's faithful to do this for us. So as I studied this out, I don't have all the cross references, but I'm just gonna list part of the hope of our calling is that God will sanctify us completely. He's gonna make us holy and blameless, and we've talked about that. He's gonna make us like Jesus. He's gonna complete his work in us, and he's gonna take us home. So this is our salvation contract. That's what the hope of your calling is. Our calling assures us of a delightful future because our hope in Jesus' return is part of this hope of our calling. So God invited us, we said yes, and God's gonna do the work in us to make us like Jesus. And then he's gonna take us home. So that's the hope of our calling So next, Paul wants us to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us. And I'm not gonna go into that in depth because we've already talked a lot about the riches in Christ, but he wants us to know the riches. But I do wanna spend some time talking about this surpassing greatness of his power towards us. I loved this because I had to sit and try to figure out, okay, what does God want us to know here? He doesn't want us to know the surpassing. He doesn't want us to know the, of his power. But the real noun there, the object of the knowing, is greatness. So just think about that. What God wants you to know is the greatness of his power. He, Paul didn't pray, I want you to know the power or the surpassing power. But Paul prayed, I want them to know fully, completely, the surpassing greatness of his power. He wants us to know the greatness or magnitude of God's power. Now this word surpassing in the Greek, it means to throw with force or effort but to throw it beyond. So imagine a football pass, and you don't throw it to the person, but you throw it beyond. And that's what the word surpassing means in the Greek it's to throw beyond the mark, it's bigger and better and greater than anything we can think about. The word power is dunamis. And this is a word you're probably familiar with. It's a miraculous power or force. It's the word that we get our word dynamite from. And in the Bible, it's translated a lot of different ways, but it's the word translated miracle, anytime Jesus did a miracle. So as I'm studying this, there's, in my Bible study, there are times for application. And so on this day, when I studied this, I prayed, God, God, How can we know in fullness? How can we know fully, completely the surpassing greatness? How can we know this greatness of your power toward us? And it was like a light bulb moment because my prayer was answered by the Bible verse that I saw on the next page. And it was like, there was a lightning, it was a boom. And I was like, well, duh, here's the answer. And and this this is the answer but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 1.8. So there's not some esoteric power out there that I should pray to know the greatness of. The surpassing greatness of his power, it's in us. It's alive in us. It's not out there. It's in us. And for me, that was just like you know, the angels, the music and everything. It was just a revelation to me that that power is in me. So Paul was praying for them to be given a divine awareness, to fully know the power that they already had in Christ. It just goes along with all of this that we've seen. You, you have all of these riches. Now I want you to know the greatness of his power that is already in you. And Jesus gave this power to the believers at Pentecost. It lives in us. And we're gonna see that it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So I wanna finish up. I've got some verses to read. How am I on time? Doing good. I'm doing good. Okay, good. Because I'm getting confused between my timer and my notes and I'm up here thinking about my time. So thank you. Okay, so I'm gonna just go quickly through some things about this power that lives in us. And what I do is I looked up everywhere that dunamis was used in the New Testament. And then I put it in a document and I kind of took out the ones that were repetitive and then I made a big list. What is this dunamis power that lives in us? The greatness of it that lives in us. What's it gonna do for us? What is it the source of? So this is what I found. It's the source of the fruit of the Spirit, obviously, Galatians 5, and the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm gonna go kind of quickly, so I apologize. It's the source of overflowing hope. Romans 15, 13 says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit makes us overflow with hope It's the source of strength. Ephesians 3.16, in another one of Paul's prayers, he says, I pray that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. So it's the source of strength. It's the source of signs, miracles, and wonders. Acts 6.8 says Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was, he was full of that miraculous power. It's the source of the authority to cast out demons. Luke 9.1 says Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority. That's the dunamis power. Gave them dunamis power and authority over all the demons and to heal the diseases. So it's the source of the ability to heal diseases. It's the source of the ability to be witnesses because Acts 1.8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and Judea to the remotest part part of the earth. So it's the source of that ability. It's the source of the ability to do good. Um, Acts 10.38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. It's the, it's the source of the ability to speak or to preach. 1 Corinthians 2.4, Paul says, In my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power and the Spirit. So it's the source of the ability to do all of those things. Some other things about this power from this same study that I did, it's in earthen vessels. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that, here's our phrase, the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. And I'll tell you, Brian and I went through some things this week that, um, Anything that I have to give you tonight, it is all Holy Spirit because it's been a hard week for us with some things that happened in our neighborhood, and and I've been empty. So it's an earthen vessel that Holy Spirit fills and then uses. It strengthens us. I've already shared Paul's prayer that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man. This power works in us. Ephesians three twenty. now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. It helps us in suffering. 2 Timothy 1 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So it helps us in our suffering and it keeps our faith. First Peter 1.5 says, we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And surprisingly, there's only one way that the Bible describes that this power is perfected. It's in our weakness. It's perfected in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says then he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness most gladly therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me now when you think about all of these things that the holy spirit is the source of and what he does for us can you understand why paul would want them to know in fullness the greatness, the magnitude, the surpassing greatness of his power that's in them. That's why he wants them to know how big it is, the magnitude. So I wanna read Ephesians 1:19 through 20 in the NLT because I, I like this way. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So I wanna close. We're just gonna like fly through the end of Ephesians um, verses 21 through 23. And this is describing where Jesus is seated. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in my Bible, every time I see the word all, I circle it with a pencil. All and every and always, I circle those words. And so as I studied this, I came to um, make a list Greg, can you go to the next slide? I'm not wanting to wake up here. Oh, okay, good. So I'm not awake here, but there we go. So this is the five alls about Jesus. It said he's seated above all. He's seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named on heaven and earth. So he's seated above all. It says, all things are in subjection under his feet. So his feet are above all. It says he's head over all things to the church. So he's head over all. And then lastly, it says he fills all in all. So Jesus, he's supreme. He's over all, his feet are over all. He's seated above all and he fills us. He fills us. The fullness of him lives in us. So I'm going to um, close just by summarizing these riches in Christ. And Wiersbe is going to say what MacArthur already said. He says, we pray that we want more of Jesus, but Jesus says that we already have all of him. This is why Paul prayed that we would know that God would reveal to us what we have, what we already have. MacArthur says, we pray of getting more of Jesus, more Holy Spirit, more power, more love, more grace, more peace. But to say, I want to get all of Jesus there is implies that when we were saved, Jesus didn't give us all of himself. So our problem isn't the lack of blessings, it's the lack of insight to know how to use them. No Christian needs or can have more of the Lord than he already has. So again, I'll close with 2 Peter 1.3 in the New Living Translation. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. So for next week, if you will read Ephesians 2, and that's all the homework that we have, what we're gonna look at next week is how God reconciled, everyone to himself, the plan of salvation, and then God, how God reconciled the Jews and Gentile to each other while at the same time reconciling them to himself, which kind of blows my mind, but that's what's in Ephesians 2. So thank you so much.
0: That was awesome.
1: Thank you. You can
0: tell how much work went into that, right? So, you've heard one of the fivefold ministry gifts in operation tonight. Our thank teacher you. has been really doing it. So, thank you, Lisa, for investing that. I've, I feel really rich right now. I don't know about <laughs> yeah. you. In the glory. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Thanks for coming. Lord, we are so grateful. Um, the revelation of the goodness and the greatness and the surpassing grace. Let that really just kind of go in. And it's like, if you think you're this, Oh, poor, lonely sinner lost. No, you're not. We are exceedingly, abundantly above with all the greatness of the goodness of God. And your prayers are from that foundational place. So, Lord, we thank you from the starting of what John sang to us about you've paid it all. What can I add? What can I even say for what you did I can't. I'm speechless. And then you go on and you do exceedingly abundantly above everything we'd ever even think about. So I thank you, Lord, for um, wonderful informational revelation that ought to make us so encouraged and so full of the identity. And the, It just makes us want to love you even more, Lord. I thank you for that. So bless each family represented here. Lord, we bless what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all.